Awesome. Hey, if you have your Bible, would you join me this morning in Mark chapter 9? Mark chapter 9. I want to bring you a message this morning called, Like a Child. Like a Child. I was really, really inspired over the last few days. I don't know how many of you were in church with us last Sunday, but last Sunday we had a really different day. Um, It was kind of a different day than what we would usually do. Last week we had our kids' day camp that happened here at the church throughout the course of the week. And it all kind of culminated on the weekend. And so we had lots of kids, lots of families, lots of parents who came with their kids. Uh, maybe they're not regularly a part of our church, and maybe they were just visiting, or maybe the kids brought them along. We had a lot of people from a lot of different places here with, with us in church last Sunday. And we had a bit of a different day because we had kind of a kids' takeover. So we had our kids' drama team leading us in a, in a, or showing us, displaying for us a drama that kind of told the story of everything that happened at kids' camp last week and everything kind of culminated with that drama. But then we also had our kids' praise and worship team leading us in worship and into God's presence last Sunday morning, and it was fantastic. They did such an awesome job. And then Pastor Jeremy brought the message last Sunday morning, and I was so proud of Pastor Jeremy. He did a great job last week in the message that he brought, and it was really an awesome day. But there were two things that stood out to me last week that I just wanted to bring back because I felt like God was kind of speaking to me and working on my heart during our services last week. Two things that stood out to me specifically last week. The first thing that stood out to me was our kids' praise and worship team led us into God's presence, and they did such a great job in leading praise and worship last week. And the reason I say that is to say that they did a good job. I don't mean that they just sang good or that they performed good. What I mean is this. They did a fantastic job of leading our congregation in, in worship and engaging the people we hear that day in worship. And man, it was awesome to, to just sense God's presence in this place, even as our kids' praise and worship team was the one that was leading us. It was fantastic. It was such an awesome experience. I loved it. I enjoyed every minute of it. It was something very, very humbling to sit down front and watch these children lead us into the presence of God. That was the first thing I noticed last week. But a second thing that I noticed that really spoke to me was I watched the way that people, the adults in our congregation, responded to those children who were leading them into God's presence. To see adults all across this building engaged in worshiping God with hands lifted high, with voices raised to God, it was a beautiful thing to be a part of last week. And I was just so amazed to watch our congregation interact in that way, to see adults worshiping God while being led by children. It was crazy. And I sat down front and I was watching it. And as I was watching it, I found myself, at one point, I kind of stopped worshiping for a second. And I just found myself admiring what was happening around me. And I began to realize that Jesus talked about this in Scripture. He talked about it actually a chapter later from where you're at. He talked about it in Mark chapter 10. And I actually shared this with our church last week. But I want to read this to you again really quickly. This is what it says in Mark chapter 10 in verse 15. Jesus said, assuredly, or without question, without a doubt, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by, will by no means enter it. And as I was thinking about that this week, there was something that kind of hit me, and I wrote this down. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what your background is, if you've been in church all of your life, if you haven't been in church for very long, if, or today's your very first time coming. It doesn't matter how educated you are, how uneducated you are, what you believe, what you don't believe, how religious you may or may not consider yourself to be. Jesus said that we all come to God the exact same way. We must come like a child. But what does that mean? What does it mean to come to God like a child? Does that mean that I start to do things immaturely instead of maturely? Because as you grow up, you start to mature. Does that mean that you go backwards? 
Does it mean that you stop dressing like an adult and you start dressing more like a kid when you come to church? Does it mean that you still throw temper tantrums every now and again because that's what kids do and adults aren't supposed to? How do you act more like a kid? How do you come to God like a child rather than like the adult way that we usually do? I want to talk a little bit about this today, but I want to first say this. What Jesus is saying here is not so much a natural thing as a spiritual thing. It's kind of like when a man named Nicodemus, who was a religious leader, he came to Jesus one time in the middle of the night. And because he was a religious leader, he was afraid of what the other religious leaders would think about him meeting with Jesus. So he came to Jesus and he asked him a question. He said, Jesus, what can I do that I may obtain eternal life? And Jesus said, you must be born again. And that totally confounded Nicodemus' thinking because he asked Jesus the question. He said, how is it that I can re-enter my mother's womb and be physically born again? And Jesus said, I'm not talking about a physical birth. I'm saying, Nicodemus, you must be born of the Spirit. You must be born again of the Spirit. It was a spiritual thing that Jesus was talking about. I think in much the same way, it's a very spiritual thing that Jesus is talking about when he says that we must come to the Father as little children if we want to inherit the kingdom of God. But in order for us to understand these words of Jesus and understand what Jesus was talking about, we must understand everything that brings this into context, everything that's happened right before this. It'll help us to understand what Jesus is talking about. So you're right there in Mark chapter 9. I want to take a few minutes and I want to walk you very quickly and efficiently, if I can this morning, through a journey that the disciples walked out with Jesus where Jesus had to break some mindsets and some attitudes that weren't going to serve the disciples well if they were going to do everything that God had called them to do. So I want to read you a story this morning very quickly from Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 14. This is what it says. It says, And when he came to the disciples, he, talking about Jesus, he saw a great multitude around them, and scribes were disputing something with them. Immediately when they saw Jesus... All the people were greatly amazed, and running to Jesus, they greeted him. And he asked the scribes. Now, the scribes were like these religious leaders who were experts of the history of Old Testament law. Jesus asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out. But they could not. Jesus answered and said to him, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring the child to me. Now, I want to give you a little bit of context really quickly before we go, we go into what happens next. The beginning of Mark chapter 9, what we see is that Jesus has asked his three closest disciples. Many people would say that Jesus asked his three best friends. That was Peter, James, and John. He asked them to climb up a mountain with them. He took just those three with him, and this is what we know of the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. The Bible says that Jesus goes up with Peter, James, and John, and he is transfigured before the disciples. In other words, he's clothed in white. It's like light that surrounds him, and suddenly they see him in all of his glory. And then the Bible says that Moses and Elijah appear there to be talking with Jesus. And the disciples are having this incredible supernatural experience where they're seeing Jesus for just who he is, clothed in the glory of God. But if that wasn't enough, suddenly a voice calls down from heaven. And it's the voice of God saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to what he has to say. So the disciples, Peter, James, and John, these three select disciples get this amazing privilege of being with Jesus in the middle of the presence of God, surrounded by all of his glory. And they get to see God 
talk about his favor, speak his favor upon his son, Jesus. Now, if Peter, James, and John did not already believe that Jesus was the son of God, they most certainly did now because they stood there in the presence of Almighty God and heard God speak favorably upon him. So that happens. And as soon as this story comes to a close, Peter, James, John, and Jesus start walking back down the mountain again. And what we see unfold right here is what's going on simultaneously at the bottom of the mountain. Look at verse 20. Then they brought him to Jesus, the little boy. And when he saw Jesus, immediately the spirit convulsed the little boy, and he fell on the ground, wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to your son? And he said, it's been happening since childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, Jesus, have compassion on us and help us. Now listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, if you can believe. Everybody say, if you can believe. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed the little boy greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one who was dead, so that many around him said, the little boy is dead. But Jesus took the little boy by the hand and lifted him, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked Jesus privately. Listen to this. The disciples asked Jesus privately, Jesus, why could we not cast out that evil spirit? And so Jesus said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Now that's a relatively long passage of scripture that I wanted to read to you this morning, but you have to understand some context behind this idea and this concept that Jesus is unfolding about all of us coming to God as little children. What's Jesus talking about? Well, when we go back to the beginning of Mark chapter 9, these disciples encounter this man who's brought his son to them. And really what he's looking for is he's looking for Jesus to cast this evil spirit out of his son. But when this man arrives with his little boy, what he finds is that Jesus isn't there. Instead, it's just his disciples. So put yourself in the shoes of this man for a moment. You came to have Jesus cast this evil spirit out of your son, but instead of getting Jesus, what you got was his disciples. And the disciples were unable to cast this evil spirit out of the young boy. I think it's sad. It would probably be very disappointing if you were this man coming, looking for Jesus, but instead you didn't get the power of Jesus. What you got was the power of these disciples. And because they're operating in their own power rather than the power of God, for some reason they can't cast this evil spirit out of the young boy. It's a sad thing if you put yourself in his shoes. But not to worry, here comes Jesus to the rescue. Jesus comes down from the mountain, and when he sees that there's a commotion, he walks up, and when he realizes that the disciples can't cast this evil spirit out of the young boy, he says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I going to have to deal with you guys? He says, bring the little boy to me. He casts the evil spirit out of the little boy, and when it looks like the little boy is laying there left for dead, Jesus grabs him by the hand, and he picks him up, and suddenly the little boy has life again. The thing that I catch in this story when I read it, and the reason why I wanted to show you this long story this morning is because this is a beautiful picture of the miraculous healing power of Jesus to cast evil spirits out of people who might even be possessed by evil spirits. He literally brings this little boy back from the dead when it appears as though he's dead after the spirit's been cast out of him. So while it's this amazing victory for the miraculous power of Jesus, 
It's also a huge embarrassing failure for the disciples because they're trying so hard to cast out this evil spirit and they they just can't do it. They keep trying over and over, but they just can't do it. And when they get to the end of it, they got these religious people standing there pointing their finger, these scribes saying, see, I told you they couldn't do it. I told you they couldn't. I told you that Jesus doesn't really heal until Jesus shows up in the flesh and heals the little boy. And then there's people who are standing around and watching and they're asking questions. Well, how come they can't do it? Is this power really true? How does this thing really work? And the disciples had to have had this this enormous feeling of embarrassment and disappointment because they tried to do something that they've seen Jesus do, but they just can't do it. So they asked Jesus, Jesus, why couldn't we do it? And he says, well, this one only comes out through prayer and fasting. What Jesus is indicating here is that there's a certain amount of preparation that has to go into the disciples before they can move out and start to operate in the same power that Jesus does. But I think there's a couple other things that happen after this that help us to understand why they couldn't do what they had seen Jesus do. And what we see in just in the next couple of passages is that Jesus had to break some mindsets and he had to break some attitudes amongst the disciples if they were going to become everything that God had called them to be. And I want to say to you this morning that you and I, every single person in this place today, has a specific, unique call of God that is on your life. And if you want to step into it and if you want to achieve it, you're going to have to realize at some point that you're not going to be able to do God's best and God's highest in your own power. At some point, we're going to have to learn to lay down our own power and our own strength and pick up God's and take on his strength and his power if we want to do everything that he is calling us to do. Can somebody say amen to that this morning? Now, I want to take you through a couple of passages to illustrate why we arrived at Mark chapter 10 today. So, let's keep going this morning and look at verse 33 of Mark chapter 9. Then Jesus came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, the disciples, what was it you disputed amongst yourselves on the road. What Jesus is talking about is from the very last scene that we just saw after Jesus comes and saves the day and casts this evil spirit out of this little boy, Jesus and his disciples have moved on to Capernaum. And while they're on the road, they seem to be having this discussion amongst themselves. But the Bible doesn't just say it's a discussion. It literally says that they were having a dispute. It's like there was an argument that was taking place amongst the disciples. What was this all about? Look at verse 34. When Jesus asked them this question, what were you disputing? They said, but they kept silent for on the road they had disputed amongst themselves who would be the greatest hmm who would be the greatest now what had the disciples done that would make them so great because if i rewind just a couple of passages back what i see is that the disciples had tried to cast an evil spirit out of a little boy and they couldn't do it and jesus had to come and save the day And like we said, this was an enormous story and a great testimony of the power of Jesus, but it was a huge embarrassing failure for the disciples. And you fast forward three verses and the disciples are suddenly arguing amongst themselves, which one of us is the greatest? Think about that for a minute. How ironic is this that they had just embarrassed themselves, they had just been failures three verses ago, but now they're talking about which one of us is the best, which one of us is the greatest, which one of us will get the most recognition in this life for the things that we do, where three verses ago they had completely failed to do the thing that was put in front of them. Interesting. So Jesus, he has to respond to these guys. And what we need to understand is that Jesus was like the guy who was sitting at the back of the pack as they were walking to Capernaum, and he's just listening in to what these guys are talking about. He's just having a listen to find out what it is that these guys are disputing amongst themselves. Now, I think as a parent now that this is probably what it's like. I think we all know what it's like when we're little kids. 
I think what was happening here was this is like when two little kids go into a room and they close the door most of the way. And the parent walks by the door and the parent hears that they're talking about something. And so you know how it is, parents. You stand there, you take a couple of steps away from the door and you just kind of listen into what your kids are talking about in there. And then when you hear what they're saying, you're like, well, that's interesting. Where did they learn that? Where did they pick that up? And so later on, when they come out of the room, you go before your kids and you're like, hey, I overheard you guys talking about something in your room earlier. Tell me, what were you, oh, I didn't say that. We didn't say that. I never said that. Those words never came out of my mouth. But Jesus is sitting there listening to every single thing that they're saying. And while they were failures two minutes ago, suddenly they're talking amongst themselves about who would be the greatest. Isn't this ironic? Isn't it kind of the elephant in the room, them talking about how great they are when two minutes ago they were complete failures? It's pretty crazy. Now look at what happens next. Jesus, in verse 35, does this. And Jesus sat down. He called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, or if anyone desires to be great, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, you want to be great? You want to be first? You want to be recognized? Don't learn to put yourself first. Learn to put yourself last. But if that wasn't enough, look at the next thing that Jesus does. Jesus was the best preacher, teacher, illustrator of these kinds of beautiful messages. Look at what Jesus does. Verse 36. Then he took a little child... And set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not just me, but him who sent me. Now why does Jesus, look at what Jesus is doing. Why does Jesus grab the little child? Jesus talks to these disciples and says, if you want to be first, you're going to have to learn to be last. He reaches over and while he's sitting there in a circle with his disciples, he grabs a little child, brings him, sits him down right in the middle of them. And don't you know that as soon as the disciples saw that little child, they were immediately reminded of the little child they just saw five minutes ago whom they could not cast the evil spirit out of. It was like Jesus' way of humbling these guys and saying, you want to talk about how great you are? Let me just remind you about the, flip, the, the slip up you had five minutes ago. You guys want to talk about being the greatest? You want to talk about being the best? Well, let me just remind you that you're not as great as you think you are. And Jesus illustrates this by bringing a child and sitting him down right in the midst of those disciples. And he says, anyone who receives these little children receives me, and not just me, but the one who sent me. Now, I want to talk to you for just a moment through a couple of these passages, and I want to talk to you about the attitudes and the mindsets that Jesus had to break in these disciples if they were going to become everything that he was calling them to be. The first thing that I think Jesus had to deal with was Jesus had to deal with the fact that the disciples had a problem with power. See, when the disciples saw Jesus and saw themselves being with Jesus and they looked at the miracle-working power of Jesus and saw that one day they might be able to do those kinds of miracles and one day they might be able to operate in that kind of power, they didn't look at it as being God's power. They looked at it as being their power. Which among us will be the greatest? Who's going to be the best? Who's going to look at us and say, well, that one's the best. He's a little bit better than that one. Isn't it funny how the disciples, when being around Jesus, didn't just honor Jesus for his power, but they wanted that power for themselves so they could build themselves up and become something great in their own eyes? The funny thing about it is that it's not really any different for you and I. You might be thinking about the power of God working in your life, and maybe that's not the direction that you take it. But all of us, I think at different times in our life, we have to deal with this issue of power. 
A lot of us sometimes have a problem with power. We want to be powerful. We want to be in positions of power. We want to be the most powerful person in our company. We want to be the most powerful person in our industry. Sometimes we want to be the most powerful person in our family. Why? So that everybody can see the power that we have. Everybody can see our greatness. Everybody can see our ability. And suddenly it looks like that's what the disciples were saying. And so Jesus humbles them by bringing a child into their midst to remind them they're not as great as they think they are. I want to talk to you a little bit this morning, though, about power, and here's why. Because in order for you and in order for me to become everything that God wants us to be in our lives, at some point we will have to move away from operating in our own power to operating in the power of God. God wants to endue each and every one of us with power. I use that word specifically because the Bible says that later on when the disciples stepped into their calling, Jesus told them before he ascended to the right hand of the Father and ascended into heaven. He said, go and stay in Jerusalem and do not leave until the Holy Spirit comes because when he comes he will endue you with power. What that literally means is that the Spirit would come upon you and you would be able to operate in power and strength that is not your own. But the disciples, when they saw these opportunities to work the miracles Jesus was working, they weren't thinking about it in terms of the power of God. They were looking at it and saying, operating in my power, making it about me and my greatness and my prestige and my honor. The disciples had a problem with power. And these were some mindsets and attitudes that Jesus had to break. Let me tell you a little bit about power again this morning. If you look all throughout human history, if you look at some of the great kings, you look at some of the great leaders that we've seen throughout the course of human history, it's interesting what power does to people. Power can either corrupt or it can build people up. If you look especially and specifically at the Old Testament kings of Israel, one of the things that you see is that power had a tendency to do one of two things to people. Some kings became bad kings because when they saw power, they saw their own privilege. But good kings, when they were given power, they recognized that with much power came much responsibility. And see, God wants to give you power for the thing that you're called to, but it's not so that we can build ourselves up, put ourselves on a pedestal and say, how great I am, so everybody looks at you and says, how great thou art. No, instead, God wants to give us power so that we can operate in a power that's greater than ourselves. We can take care of the responsibilities that he's given us, and we can be stewards of the people that come into our life with his power. Because it's not about my power, it's about the power of God. Listen, if it wasn't for the name of Jesus, the disciples would have never even tried to cast that demon out of that little boy. But they couldn't do it because they were operating in their own power. And Jesus needed to show them that it's not about your power, it's about my power flowing through you. Now see... If you're here today, you might hear this and you might say, you know, I don't really feel called to like preach on a platform or I don't feel called to go door to door laying hands on the sick and casting out demons. I don't feel like called to do what the disciples did. No, but in order for us to do everything God is calling us to do individually and specifically, we need the help of the power of the Holy Spirit to be operating in our lives. And I don't think God's going to turn that loose to people who are willing or who are looking to make a name for themselves and make themselves great. He wants people to use the power of the Holy Spirit to make his name great and just simply be vessels and stewards of that power. And in order for the disciples to become that, Jesus had to deal with their hearts. He had to deal with their hearts. Later on, they would be endued with power and they would go and do all these amazing things. These guys would write the history books of what would become the church that we are still a part of to this day. Jesus had to break that mindset and he had to break that mentality and that attitude. So by now you would think the disciples have learned their lesson. You know, they're going to move on. They're going to start to let go of these things. But let's read on and see the very next thing that happens. Look at verse 38, literally the very next verse. John starts talking. It says, Now John answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. 
And we forbade him because he does not follow who? Us. Hmm, those are interesting words. We forbade him for casting out demons because he does not follow us. Look at where John characterizes himself. He, I, I'm like Jesus. He doesn't follow us. Verse 39. But Jesus said, do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, Jesus does an interesting thing right after that because we remember the first time around the disciples tried to cast an evil spirit out of a little child and they failed. And in order for Jesus to illustrate the disciples' issue and problem they had with power, he sat them down in a circle and brought a little boy right there into his midst. Well, we're still in the exact same setting, and look what Jesus does in verse 42. Can't you imagine Jesus putting his arm around that little child that's still sitting there, and he says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. In other words, what Jesus is saying is anybody that would deceive a little child, it'd be better if a millstone was put around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Now, what, what's he talking about here? Why does he say that? I think Jesus says this to illustrate and get to the heart of the second problem that the disciples had. I think the second problem the disciples had is the disciples had a problem with position. See, when John starts talking, he says, we forbid that man who was casting out demons in your name. We forbid him to continue to do that because he's not one of us. Whoa. He doesn't say he's not a follower of Jesus. He says he's not a follower of us. That's interesting. Interesting language that John uses there. See, these guys, I think when they were around Jesus, they felt incredibly powerful. And I think that they felt as though they had a really key position in the kingdom of God that was to come. It's kind of like when you get on the ground floor of something that's going to be huge one day. It's kind of like when you bought stock right when the thing went public and now the stock has just gone through the roof and you're sitting on a gold mine. I think that's exactly the way that the disciples felt. When they were with Jesus, they're like, man, we got in early on this thing. Jesus come and called our name and he said, come and follow me. And the disciples are like, wow, look at us. We're in this position. He's going around doing all these amazing things. We get to travel with him. Nobody else has that privilege. We're one of the 12. This guy over here, he's casting out demons in the name of Jesus. We don't even know who he is. Jesus, we forbid that guy from doing that. Why? Because he's not one of us. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. He's going around casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And if he's not against us, then he's for us. Nobody's going to speak evil of what he's doing. And Jesus literally looks back at them, and it's like he rebukes them for stopping that guy. Now, again, elephant in the room. Let's take a look at what's happening here. John's identifying that there's a guy who is effectively going and casting demons out of people. Remember five minutes ago when the disciples tried to cast a demon out of a little boy and they failed? I wonder if the disciples had sprung up a root of bitterness in their hearts that are like, well, somebody else is doing it better than we are. And they're not even one of us. Because I think John is pointing out right here that the disciples had a problem with position. They were in it not just for what Jesus could get out of it. They were in it for what they could get out of it as well. That's an interesting thing. He's not one of us. He's not one of us. He's not one of us. And it's funny because that guy that was going around casting out demons in the name of Jesus, we don't even know what his name was but he was doing it effectively. Can I tell you something today? The most effective ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ are the people who don't care if you know their name or not. They're just here on earth to do what God has called them to do. We talk about the disciples having a problem with position. I think oftentimes it's very much the same for each and every one of us. 
I mean, think about it for just a minute. Everybody here, for the most part, I'm sure, works a job. I know we got a lot of stay-at-home moms and dads. we got a lot of people who are retired in this congregation. But I think we all know what it's like to work a job where we're trying to climb that ladder. We're trying to get to the top. And, man, isn't this just the American way? We see that ladder and we know we need to climb to the top. I'm going to do anything i got to do to get to the top of that ladder, even if it means kicking a few other people off in the process. This reminds me of, I used to watch wrestling when I was a kid. You can just laugh at me now, but... I used to watch professional wrestling, and they had this thing called the ladder match. And they would have this big suitcase of money hanging from the roof. And you would have to climb up the ladder, and whoever could get to the top of that ladder and grab that money, they were the guy that got to keep it all. And it was funny because you watch it, and it would be absolute mayhem as these people would just beat the tar out of each other, trying to get up to the top of that ladder to get that money that's inside that bag. Guys would use the ladder to beat the other guy up just so they could finally set it back up and get to the top. And it's funny because in America, we're kind of that way. We'll do anything and everything that we need to do to get to the top of that ladder, even if it means kicking a few other people off. Now listen, I know that none of you here today would do this, but I'm sure you have a friend or something, a family member or whatever. But have you ever like gone to lunch with the boss man that can give you that promotion that you want? And for 30, 45 minutes, you've got their ear. You can tell them about how qualified you are for that position. You can tell them about how qualified you are for that job. But instead of building yourself up, what you do is you build yourself up and you tear somebody else down. You say, you know, this person that you might be considering, totally unqualified. Nobody likes working with them. They're always a problem. They're not efficient. They don't do a very good job. The quality of their work, it's not so great. But me, I'm excellent. I'm so good. I'm totally qualified for this job. I'm the man for your job. I'm the guy that you want to hire. Isn't it funny how often we do things like that? We build ourselves up and we have to tear somebody else down in order to get to the position that we want to get to. I remember when I was in Bible college in Australia, the school, the Bible school that I was going to was attached to a church that was the largest church in the entire nation, all of Australia. And this church did amazing things in the community around it. I mean, they were active in the urban areas and the suburban areas. They were handing out food and clothing. They were in people's yards every weekend, helping communities, doing different things. They were just enormous impact they were having on their community. But it seemed like every single week there was always a new newspaper article that was trying to attack the church and find out, you know, making accusations and find out what was going on with the finances of the church and act, talk about the, their hands of being in politics and all these other things. And half the time it was just these false allegations. And other, other times there was like something there, but there was really nothing to it. And I was sitting there talking with my professor one day while we were having coffee, and I asked him a question. I said, why does that always happen? Why do they get such bad press? And he goes, well, we have this thing in Australia called tall poppy syndrome. And tall poppy syndrome is where one poppy starts to grow a little bit taller than the rest because they're doing things really well. They're prospering. They're doing things great. And everybody else, instead of praising them and applauding them for the job that they're doing, instead we just tear them down so that they can be at the same level as everybody else. Because we don't want to celebrate people's accomplishments. We don't want to lift other people up. We don't want to applaud them. We want to bring them down to our level so that nobody feels better than anybody else. Tall poppy syndrome. I thought, man, how sad is that? How true is that about the world that we live in? We will do anything and everything that we feel we can do to get ourselves to the position that we want to be in. But what does Jesus say? You want to be greatest in the kingdom? You want to be first? You're going to have to learn to be last. And that's the, that, that's the thing he's trying to teach his disciples. The disciples had a problem with power and they had a problem with position. And in order for them to be everything that Jesus was calling them to be, that we see them become later on, he had to deal with these mindsets. It was incredibly important. Now, again, you would think by now, after these two lessons and after the failure of the disciples, after these subtle reminders that Jesus has dropped into their lap, you would have to think that surely they've learned their lesson now, but no, not quite yet. 
I want to take you a little bit further. Now move up to Mark chapter 10 and look at verse 13. This is what it says there in verse 13, just a few passages down. It says, then they brought little children to Jesus. Now, I just want to stop right there for a minute because remember, who was it that they couldn't cast the evil spirit of? A little child. When Jesus wanted to get their attention and deal with their power, their need for power and their need for position, who did he bring into the circle? A little child. Okay, if you are one of the disciples at this point, if you even see a child anywhere in the vicinity, you got to be thinking that Jesus wants to teach you a lesson. But look at verse 13. Then they brought little children to Jesus. Okay, disciples, your radar goes up, your eyes open. Surely you know that Jesus wants these little children to come. They brought, them, they brought these children to Jesus that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them to Jesus. Look at verse 14. But when Jesus saw this, he was greatly displeased. Other versions say he was indignant. Literally, Jesus lost his dignity. He was so upset with the disciples. He was greatly displeased, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and he blessed them. This picture shows us people who recognize Jesus for who he was. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. And suddenly people are coming to Jesus, but they're not just coming on their own to Jesus. Now they're bringing their children to Jesus that Jesus might bless them. And it's funny because the disciples' priorities are so messed up, they're so jacked up, they're so out of whack that as these little kids start to come to Jesus, they're like, no, 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 no. Jesus ain't got time for you. Jesus' priorities are the adult things. Jesus' priorities are the important things. These children coming and wasting Jesus' time, no, 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 no. It said that they forbid them from coming. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. What are you guys doing? Let the children come to me for such is the kingdom of God. See, right here we can look at this and think that what's happening is Jesus is talking specifically about these children, but he's trying to teach these disciples a lesson. Because the disciples have this adult mentality, something throughout their life has gotten corrupted, where what they're out to get is something other than what Jesus has for them. Jesus needed to deal with their problem that they had with power. He needed to deal with the problem that they had with position. And now suddenly what we see is that the disciples have their priorities out of whack. And I want to ask you a question this morning. Are there priorities that are sitting at the top of your list that are taking up space of the priorities that God's, where God's priorities should be sitting? Are the things that are most important to you that aren't that important to God and things that are important to God that aren't sitting at the top of your list? Because the disciples had this view of Jesus and this view of his ministry that was totally and completely backwards and upside down. And when he says that you should let the little children come to me, he's trying to show them and illustrate to them that all of us, each and every one of us, have to let go of the way that we see the world and come to God like a child. I thought a little bit about this this week and what it means to come to God with childlike faith. What does it mean to come to God like a child? You know how when you're a kid, when you're a little kid, you're so curious. You're always wanting to know what's going on in the world around you. There's things that are happening around you that you just don't understand. You see things that your mind doesn't yet comprehend. You're not really educated and learned in the ways of the world yet. So when you don't know something, what do you do? You ask mom, you ask dad a question. And when mom and dad answer the question that you've asked them that you don't know the answer to, you just believe that it's true. Why? Because mom or dad told you. So if mom and dad said so, then it must be right. 
Now, all these years later, and I'm sure Pastor will give me a hard time about this, but all these years later, you realize that maybe mom and dad didn't have all the answers right, and maybe they didn't know the answers to every question. But when you're a kid, you just believe it. Why? Because mom and dad said so. See, there's something like ch about childlike faith that almost has a naivety about it that's not worried about the cares and the systems and the weight of the world. But if mom or dad said so, then I can take it to the bank and believe it and act upon it because they said so. There's something about childlike faith that asks God the questions of what he has for our life and what his purpose is and what his plan is for our life. And when God begins to speak to us, we just say, well, if God said it, then I believe it and therefore I'll act upon it. That, that's what childlike faith is. And it's not contaminated and it's not tainted by our need for power and our need for position and our whacked out priorities. Instead, it's coming to God and hearing what he has to say and saying, well, God, if you said so, then I believe it. If you said it, I believe it. I'll take it to the bank and I'll act upon it. What I've seen over the course of these last couple weeks here in our church that's really been amazing to me is, I don't know how many of you know this, I don't know how many parents we have in the room or especially parents of of um, junior high and high school students, but right now in our church, many people might not even know this, I know that many people are aware of it, but right now in our church, we are having a move of God amongst our teenagers. And here's the thing, I could stand here for 10 minutes and tell you what an amazing job Pastor Corey and Amber are doing and their youth leaders, and they are, they're doing a great job, but can I tell you it's not happening because of their power, it's just happening because of the power of God. Because there's something about childlike faith that when you encounter God and you don't have this agenda about what I get out of it and what position it puts me in and all my priorities being out of whack where you just come before God and you have this encounter and as soon as you have that encounter, you just take it to the bank and say, God, if you said it, I believe it and I'll act upon it. And right now, we are seeing an amazing move of God happening amongst our teenagers. And I think the reason why it's happening is because of this thing that Jesus talked about called childlike Last week at Kids Day Camp, we had over 50 kids commit their lives to Jesus for the very first time. And you want to know why it happened? It's not because of the power of our kids' ministry. It's not because of anybody's position or any great word that was spoken over them. It's because of childlike faith that has an encounter with God that says, God, if you said it, I believe it and I'll act upon it. And can I tell you something? An authentic move of God doesn't look like me being the powerful man of God who brings the powerful word of God to you. It looks like a group of people coming together and say, I don't care about power, I don't care about position, and my number one priority, God, is to put you first. And that, my friends, is when an authentic move of God can happen. I don't know why I'm bowing on my knees right now, but there's something very humbling about standing before you right now knowing that I'm the guy that's talking. But let me just tell you something. When I talk to you right now, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, it ain't about me. It's not about my power. It's not about my position. It's the fact that an authentic move of God is minus all of that stuff, and it's just simply putting our faith, childlike faith in God and saying, God, if you believe it, I'll do it. God, if you said it, I believe it, and I'll do it. If you said it, I believe it. I'll take it to the bank. That's what childlike faith is. And over time, what each and every one of us have to learn is that we have to let go of the way we've seen the world, the cares of this world, the systems of this world, if we want to step into the kingdom of God. I think about when we do child dedications here a couple times a year. We always have a huge amount of people who stand up here with their children. They dedicate kids to the Lord. And I ask the question, why do people dedicate their kids to the Lord? 
Why did these people come to Jesus and say, Jesus, bless my kid? I think the reason why is because all adults, all of those who have grown up in the system and the way this world functions, what we realize is that we want God to get their attention before the ways of the world start messing with their mind and messing with their mindsets and messing with their attitudes. And if we can understand that, what we'll get is the point that Jesus was trying to illustrate to these disciples. If we want to step into the kingdom of God, if we want to inherit the kingdom of God, we got to lay down that need for power. we got to lay down that need for position. And we got to get rid of these other priorities that are sitting on the top of our list. And like children, we have to humbly come and say, God, use me. Use me. Do something great with my life. There are some of you in this place today that you've known for years, you've known for decades of your life that God had something great for your life, but yet you still feel like you haven't found it. You still feel like you haven't stepped into it. Can I just propose the thought that maybe our need for power, our need for position, and our priorities have been so out of whack that we haven't come to God like a child and just said, God, simply use me. Maybe you're here today and you feel like you're far from God. And the weight of this world, the cares of this world have just burdened you down and they've just sat around your neck and it wears you down everywhere that you go. Maybe today's the day that we let go of those things and like children, we come before God and say, God, I know you got a purpose for my life. I give you all this junk, all this stuff. It doesn't mean anything. Could you still just use me? In closing today, maybe you feel like you're far from God. Maybe the weight of this world has been sitting on you so heavy when you came in here today, the idea that Jesus could forgive you Someone wrapped up in the ways of this world. Someone so concerned with the cares of this world. Maybe you feel contaminated by the systems of this world that have brought you to this place where you feel like there's no way I could save myself. The good news is that when we couldn't save ourselves, God did it for us and he sent Jesus to take our place on a cross. The Bible says there's this thing that separates us from God. It's called sin. It's where we've missed the mark, where we've disobeyed, where we've got out of line with what God's purposes are for our life. The Bible says that all of us have sinned, that we've all fallen short of God's glory. But God loved us so much that he built a bridge so that we could step into right relationship with him. And he did it by sending his son Jesus to come to this earth, to take our place on the cross and die a death that we deserve for our sin. When Jesus went to that cross, he took our sin upon his back so that we could be made right with God. The Bible says that God didn't stop there. Three days later, he raised him from the dead, conquering death and hell in the grave so that all of eternity for us could be defined by a relationship with God and we would not be subject to death and hell in the grave. Today, if you need to come into relationship with God, I wanna tell you he's got the best plans that you could ever discover for your life, better than your plans. If you're here today and you felt far from God for a long time because you've chosen to go down your own path, I want to tell you that God is standing there at the end of your road with open arms saying, come on back. He wants to take the weight of the world and the cares of this world, release us from it, and help us walk into relationship with Him, just like children experiencing the love of a Heavenly Father. I want to ask everybody if you bow your heads this morning. I want to pray two prayers. For people here today that feel like you need to be liberated from the cares of this world, from the weights of this world that have been sitting on you so heavily and reapproach God with childlike faith. I wanna pray for you today. Father, I pray that you would get our attention, that you would grab hold of our hearts and that as we stand here today, Father, recognizing our need for you, our need for a savior, that we let go of the weight of this world, the cares of this world, the systems of this world. We set it aside and simply as children, we come before you we ask that you would use us 
that you would give us purpose, that you would direct our paths and our footsteps, and that you would walk us into the very best that you have for us. God, it's not about our power. It's not about our position. It's not about our priorities. We put you first today. In Jesus' name. And finally, with heads bowed still, if you're here today, you do recognize that maybe you're not walking in relationship with God, I want to pray with you. We're all going to pray a prayer here together. What's significant about this prayer is not my words, but it's your words and the meaning of those words within your heart. I want to ask if you'd repeat these simple words after me. And the Bible says that when we believe this in our heart and we confess it with our mouths, that we are then saved and born again and we step into right relationship with God. Can I invite everybody here today, especially those who want to pray this prayer for the first time or recommit their lives, can I invite you to repeat these words and say, Dear Jesus, I thank you for taking my place on the cross and dying for my sins. Today I choose you. I choose your life. I choose your your purpose. And I want your peace. I want to walk with you. I want to learn your ways. So I ask you to be my Lord. And I ask you to be my Savior. From this day forward, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.